Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When it comes to housing prices in Canada, I've learned a few things really get under people's skin, like the bidding process itself. It's blind, so you never know if you're too low or too high or right in the middle. And real estate agents, they get paid more if you spend more. Who thought of that? I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, as part of our series for first-time homebuyers, I asked an expert about some of these issues. Sor Somerville is an associate professor at UBC Sauter School of Business who researches housing prices. Would opening up bidding help cool our housing market? Do we need to rewrite some of the rules to nod to the fact that there's a supply issue? Does the lack of faith in the real estate housing system matter? These are a few points we touched on in our conversation, continue to weigh in on the housing market in the future. But for now, this is our last episode in our First Time Homebuyer series. As always, the interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Hey, thanks for hopping on the line. I'm going to get right into it. Right. I've been overwhelmed by emails from people around Canada who say that one of the driving factors of housing prices is the blind bidding process. The fact that you don't know who you're competing against, so you're just putting down money and hoping that you win. Is this a big factor in what's driving up home prices? It'd be really hard to come up with a story why this is a big factor in driving up housing prices, but it's not hard to see a framework where this does contribute to both higher bids than you might otherwise see, but more critically, that that then leads to a change of higher bids going forward. So that when I think about the possible damage that it can cause is that there is the ability for any given high bid that one doesn't really know why that happened for a particular house resetting the market in a neighborhood. And so there's the possibility that you sort of have this chain effect. The the problem is that like the standard theory of auctions basically says that a blind bid versus an open bid type auction should come out with the same price. And then you have to sort of relax some of the assumptions about what the behavior of buyers is, how sensitive to they are about risk, how much is their valuation driven by their own individual valuations, or are they learning information from each other, or is there some shared understanding of the market? Basically, Sir said, it depends. But then he quickly added to me right after this that there's an important study out there supporting the idea that open bidding could help cool housing prices. There's one paper looking at car license auctions in Singapore, which is not houses. But but the critical thing is, is that that's an empirical paper where they find when they went from a shift from a sealed bid framework to an open bid framework, they actually ended up with lower bids. Oh, it did? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's individuals, not professionals, right? So the sort of risk aversion part might be be more at play. They're the shared notion of what's the value of this and then the fact that it might have a resale value. So there, there are ways that that might not be a bad fit for housing. I mean, the problem when people talk about this is they make the comparison between auctions and negotiated sales. And mostly what we have in hot housing markets are, are essentially sealed bid auctions. 
they're, they're not negotiated sales. I see. They're auctions. It's just auctions where you don't know how many other people are bidding and you don't know what the other bids are. So the thing is, there's also some strong evidence that if we opened the bidding process so that you could see what other people were offering for a house, it might not make much of a difference. And we know this because there are other countries out there that have an open bidding process. Now, now I mean, the thing to realize is, you know, there, there are countries where auctions are the common way to sell most housing, right? Australia, Ireland, Norway. And it's not as though you observe, say, you know, Sydney and Melbourne have no shortage of affordability problems, right? So it's not, it's not this magic way to get, get out of problems. Yeah. I have did a little bit of Googling and I've read that people who study auctions conclude that basically, even if you could see what other people were bidding, it would not have, call it a material effect on the price of any single house. But numerous people I've spoken to have kind of told me some version of of this story. I'll say it quickly. And it basically goes like this. They put in a bid for a house or a condo. Their agent comes back to them and says, you know, they want second bids. They, you think you need to go a little higher. And they raise it by some small increment, 1%, 2%. But that ends up being whatever, 20,000 to 30,000 to, you know, 50,000, because these are huge numbers. And maybe it's not that big of a deal for that particular house. It's a small percentage on that house. But collectively, over time, that this pattern, if repeated enough, it stands to reason, does cause housing prices to go up. Yeah, I, th- I think the only way you really get a, good, a story about the way this goes up is in a sealed bid where I don't know what other people are, are bidding. That somebody bids a crazy bid, and then everybody looks at that crazy bid, and they just see it after the, the fact and say, oh, that must be what house prices are, right? So there, I, th- I think when you don't have information about what other people are bidding, that the possibility of outlier bids resetting the market is is where the long-term problem is. So so imagine a situation where let's just do where sealed bids are submitted, but afterwards we all know what the bids were and how many people bid. So if you're looking to buy, you notice on the, the last house that was purchased, it was purchased for say $1 million, but all the other, you know, everybody else was bidding 700,000. You might think that that one million was a bit of a weird outlier, and you wouldn't use that as your benchmark for what you need to, to bid going forward. On the other hand, if there was one at one million, and five at nine hundred fifty thousand, and four at nine hundred thousand, you'd say, "Oh, well, I think the prices are a million dollars." So the knowledge about the distribution of the prices, I think, is what's important in terms of how any successful transaction influences future understandings of what prices are. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Right, which is different than sort of models where does it increase prices, right? It's not the price per se, but where that is in the distribution. Now, if you have an auction, you never get that 1 million outlier, not never, but you usually don't get that 1 million outlier because with the auction, the, the, they don't normally jump bid, you know, 30% of what everybody else's bid. So you don't tend to get that kind of thing now, I know all this terminology about auctions and negotiated sales may be a little confusing. So I just asked Sir to quickly explain. The way it works in, in hot markets is essentially you have that cattle call open house on a Thursday where we all race in and 200 people mill around the house and everybody has anxiety. And then the, the realtor says, oh, we're accepting bids on Sunday. And then you submit a bid. That's a sealed bid auction. As opposed to, you know, remember the sort of traditional way where somebody listed it and buyers might show up and you might get an offer today and you have to think about, do I think that or do I wait till tomorrow or a week from now and see what else I get? 
in these hot markets, they are auctions. They're just sealed bid auctions. And maybe it's sealed bid with a second round. But again, like without knowing what other people have said, you don't really know what to believe. And and I, you know, my take on this has always has been one of the big concerns is just faith in the system. And when it's not transparent and, and it's large amounts of money and we're really stressed out because it's housing and it's not something we do every day, the, the lack of faith in the system, I think, is a real problem. And that actually goes to something I wanted to ask you about was like the second biggest comment I received from listeners or readers to past episodes I've done on housing has been basically a complaint against real estate agents that from an economic perspective, they get paid. How do I put this? Too much? No, they're incentivized (laughs) to see you spend as much as possible because they get paid more if you pay for more. And so when you talk about faith in the system, a lot of people are relying on the real estate agent, but like their economic incentive is not actually aligned with the buyer. Is that an issue, I guess, is what I would ask you. So the place I started is the academic research is actually, the incentive realtors have is actually to get a seller to take a lower price more quickly, right? That for them, the return is a faster sale rather than a highest value sale. Now, again, you know, this was in the old model when, you know, buyers would show up and they're going to wait another week and, you know, negotiate sales and things taking time that, that, you know, once you have an auction, then their incentives kind of flip to try to get as many people as possible at the auction and have as much craziness in order to get, to get the highest price. Right. But, but since a realtor is being paid by the seller, that incentive lines up with the seller's incentive. I mean, part of the problem is you think that when you're a buyer, that the agent works for you, they're paid by the seller. So, um, you know, that that's inherently a problem. The way that I've heard about it working, the house gets put up for sale or the condo gets put up for sale, say on like a Tuesday. And then, you know, a week later, you are asked to submit bids. And the real estate agents are very helpful in that sense in that they do all the paperwork for you because most people don't know how to do that. And then there is a little bit of transparency through the agent in that an agent can call you back after you submit it and say like, hey, I'm down here. I submitted the bids. There's five other people here, it looks like. So if you want to come back with a second bid in the next half hour, let me know. We'll, we'll just submit it and we'll see what happens. Yeah. So you get different kinds of situations, I think, depending on what happens with the bidding. So there is that element of a little bit of potential sequential bidding. Again, the problem is because you're not there you don't really know if people are telling you the truth or not. I mean, that's one of the nice things about open bidding is that you're seeing what's going on as opposed to they're not happy with the bids or whatever. You don't really know if they're happy with the bids or not. You don't know what the other bids are. Yeah. And, and I think that's where there, there is merit in, trans, in transparency for the process, which is an open bid as opposed to a sealed bid. The, the realtor industry is a little bit you know, striking in that you would think it would be ripe for technological disruption, right? Because it's about information and access to information. And then it's about matching buyers and sellers, which is something that technology is actually pretty good at. The fact that it it hasn't disrupted and it hasn't really disrupted that much, even on the commercial side, is rather striking. Yeah. And why is that? So I, th- I think the first place that I would go is that most people don't buy and sell houses re- regularly. And so realtors act as a form of insurance, both to the buyer and the seller, both a sort of combination therapist and insurance. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, 
help you sort of be reassured that you're there's not something that you're going to miss. There's nothing that you're not going to be aware of to listen to you complain, to put up with you driving around to 18 million houses, to give you advice. They serve sort of a lot of different roles. And essentially, people are saying, I'm willing to pay a certain percentage to have that element of expertise. I mean, I remember 15 years ago when things were going crazy in the mid-aughts here and 1% realty came in basically saying, hey, we'll take a, a smaller fee. You'd think that they would get a huge market share and they did not. Huh. There's a, a willingness of a lot of buyers to want to have that full service option. Again, I think of it as, as some form of insurance, consulting, and counseling all kind of bundled together. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So at this point, he told me that the academic research doesn't really support the idea that an open bidding process or agents are causing housing prices to rise. But he'd also added a lot of caveats to his answers, including that the market research is based on old models before the housing market was the red hot market that we see today where kind of every house sells above asking price. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little, but I asked him about this. So I, I think what I would differentiate is is the world where transactions were negotiated sales with houses that were listed on the market for a long time. That framework versus the multiple bidder type of framework. And I think that's where the difference is. You know, most historically in North America and where the research on realtors has focused is in that you know, traditional type market framework where you listed a house, you might have an open house, people said, you know, would might make an offer, the house is on the market, it could be on the market for 90 days. And so that's a situation where for the realtor, their time and money is such that they'd rather give up some money because it doesn't cost them as much in dollars as it does to you in order to get a quicker sale. But that's not the framework that we're looking at in, in hot Canadian markets right now. And you know, it certainly hasn't been that way in the Vancouver's and Toronto's of the world for decades, where it's the essentially we're going to have an auction. And so th- I think that flips the realtor's incentive where what they want to do instead of just making things quicker, they want to have more bit that, you know, they have more bidders. That's why you get realtors suggesting, well, list a low price because that will people to be interested against their better judgment. And the more people submitting the bids, the more people freak out, right? That, that's kind of a problem in discussing these things is, is that, you know, we've existed Vancouver, Toronto, and now the country more broadly in a different type of selling environment than has historically been the norm in real estate. But that also changes how much you think realtors should be paid. I mean, it's one thing that they have to shepherd a process over three months. It's another thing if it's find somebody to stage the home, stage the home, have the open house, take the bids, that does feel like they should be getting a smaller cut than, you know, in some sense, you know, how much, how, this is a, this is a rhetorical question. How hard do you have to work in an incredibly hot market to earn your, your fee? My general sense is that dynamics in the market have obviously changed, but that these issues, real estate agents, the sort of rules around bidding, that these are not the main things that people who study the real estate market would change if they were given free reign to just rewrite the rules tomorrow. And so I just wanted to ask you, in your mind, if you had, you know, could change one thing 
to make housing more affordable tomorrow, what would it be? Okay, so let me ask you, who am I making it more affordable? Am I talking about making home ownership more affordable? Am I talking about making housing more affordable for poor folk? You know, who's who's my target here? Because the answer is is not exactly. The I same. see, huh? Uh, how would you make housing more affordable across Canada for you know the readers of the National Post, <laughs> the lowest earners? Let's say, right. I think we're in a situation where for a lot of really low income people in urban centers, that some type of social housing, subsidized housing is really the only answer. If we had really easy housing supply and sufficient vacancy, then you could go with a voucher type system where you just give rent subsidies. But giving rent subsidies when we don't, when we have problems on the housing supply side, just, you know, as a transfer to landlords, it increases rent. I see. And so in some sense, I guess the answer both for, you know, better off first time home buyers, middle class folks and poor folks. I think the number one issue we have is a supply issue. I mean, that's sort of first. And, and do you see that changing at any point in the future or near future? Well, even if everything changed around policy in the near future. You know, if you're talking about building dense housing, you're not going to you're not going to create a 12 story apartment building or a 12 story condo building. It won't show up for three years from today. So it's a really hard thing to change in the short. And it's not clear that we have the sort of will or political will or whatever you want to call it to replace a lot of single family home neighborhoods with denser neighborhoods. Well, the people in those neighborhoods certainly don't want them to change. So as long as the veto is held by local communities, expecting local communities to embrace change, I think is unreasonable and doesn't reflect human behavior. You know, I mean, my line is nobody ever moved into a neighborhood saying, boy, I can't wait for 30 years from now when it's dense. <laughs> the other thing is, is that when you go to density, what you do is you essentially you, you can make housing less expensive, but you make single family houses more expensive. Right. It's kind of a weird conundrum. So we define house prices by the price of a single family house. What you do is you push up the prices of the single family houses, even as you're lowering the price of housing as shelter. Right. So let me give a, a Toronto example. If you cannot build out anymore, you can only build up. But we're going to get rid of zoning so you can build up anywhere. Well, what's going to happen is as we build up more, we have fewer single family houses. Everyone who wants a single family house will end up, you know, be willing to pay more for those. And so the price of single family housing goes up a lot. But because we built lots of condos and townhouses, people can get housing less. Which would be probably a win for a lot of people. Oh, it's a win on the climate. It's a win a lot of ways. But as long as we keep defining housing as what's the price of a single family house, it is a little bit misleading. I see. Yeah. Well, it's a good point. And I think that's a good note to end this conversation on then is that like, we need to like rethink about what we want from housing. You know, one of the problems we ask housing here is a lot of things, right? We ask it to be shelter. We ask it to be community. Uh, but we also ask it to be a, a form of retirement savings. Like if you were designing a system from the get-go, you would not say that someone's choice on housing should be the primary mechanism in order to accumulate savings in that right. society. You want to separate those things. You know, the fact that we haven't, you know, creates problem that creates dangers too, right? Like when I look at Vancouver, the thing that I'm worried about, and I think this will be applying in Toronto and, and unfortunately maybe elsewhere now in Canada as well, is 
you know, a world where the only people way people can young people can buy is if they get transfers from parents or grandparents. Those transfers from parents and grandparents come from the fact that they've had increases in housing wealth. Then you get you know you have this danger of a two-stage society where there's the people who come from the landed class where their parents were landowners and that enables them to be landowners, and then folks where if they didn't get the you know the birth draw of being born to somebody who has housing or who parents have housing, then you're not able to get in at all. Right? That's not the kind of society we want to have, and so I think it is pretty important to be aggressive on dealing with this. But again, that's also tied to the fact that owning your house it does a lot in terms of feeling like what it does in terms of giving you satisfaction about life and feeling of arrived. And, you know, that's how you save for retirement. And that's probably not the way we really want to organize. We started. Yeah. Again. All of which seems to be to say, this is a huge issue that no single factor can explain. No single policy is going to change. It's not going to change overnight. I don't know. I listened to I listened to the government and the the opposition party at the federal level, and they both seem quite confident that they're going to solve this problem through their brilliant strategy. Uh-huh. So. And do you think it's true? You think that we'll see any changes in the room? Okay. No. <laughs> I, 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 I look. It's a challenge at the federal level because the federal levers are limited when it comes to certain aspects of housing. The best lever that you have for the federal government is really on what's the price of debt. And the, you know, the housing finance system, because that is a national federal level type activity. So when the problem is the absence of capital, then the federal government can actually be really good. And that's what you saw, you know, in North America post-World War II in terms of expanding home ownership through the ability to access debt markets, which which really had a strong federal hand in, in guaranteeing those things and creating the, the framework both in the United States and Canada. So that's actually a really good way for the federal government to work. Federal government is more limited when we have what's fundamentally a supply problem, and that supply problem is being determined at the local right. level. It's a it's a system wide problem that is going to take a lot of cooperation across and through governments to, to change. And and, and if, if everyone's idea is housing affordability is a terrible problem, oh that new building is not appropriate in this community, build it over there, right? Then you never solve the problem because it's always build it over there. And then there's no there there if everyone's saying over there. Yeah. Well, you've given me some great, I think like a great big picture perspective on what's happening with the real estate market. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. No worries. So there you have it. There's no one simple answer to make housing more affordable, but we could update the process at every level of government and the way we think about housing in terms of what we want from it. Should it be shelter and community and retirement? These are questions to ponder. Thanks for listening to Down to Business. A huge thank you to Sir Somerville, a professor at the UBC Sauter School of Business. Thanks also to Bryce Hall, who composed and performed the music on the show and produced the show. To Pamela Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid for their editing and web support. And thank you for listening and sharing episodes with a friend or rating us on your podcast app. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. Until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com. <laughs>